What a great opportunity to be together once again to study the Word of God together. Let's begin with a word of prayer as we ask the Lord to attend to our time. Father, this morning we come together to worship You and no better way to worship You than to hear from You, to open Your Word and to look into it that we might gain wisdom, the skill for living here and now that might change us, cause us to be like Christ. We're grateful that every part, every jot and tittle of your word will be fulfilled, that all of it is absolute, it is as secure as you are in the glories of heaven, and we know that you are immovable. And so we trust you to that end. We thank you that we can know you through our faith in Jesus Christ and that we can be transformed into the likeness of Christ through your word. Use it now for our good and your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as we come to the Word of God this morning, i uh, ask you to take your Bibles and open them to our study of 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, as we continue our study on faith that finishes well, and we are really dealing with this whole idea and seeming issue, if you will, in evangelicalism throughout the ages with false teaching, false teachers. We've been focusing our attention over the last several weeks on verses 1 through 9 of chapter 3, and I want to read those for us as we begin our time this morning, just to kind of set the context once again. The Apostle Peter says this, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth, by the word, by his word, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. A few weeks ago, when we were in our study together, we ended our study with 
a declaration. We said that when it comes to the living of our lives here on this earth and we survey the surroundings and all that has taken place and all that is taking place within our world, we said this, you can A, either embrace the fact that the Bible is the Word of God and that those who wrote the words that we have on its pages are men who were specifically chosen by God and carried along by God the Spirit so that what we have here in the Bible is His revelation to us. Or, or you can embrace the world's philosophies and its professed intellectual findings about the world. You can either accept the reality and fact that this is the absolute truth and that it is and has all of the sufficient answers that one needs for life and godliness, or you can simply embrace the world. There are no other options. Those are the only two options that we have. And depending on which one that you embrace, you will, will either determine your life and who the God you follow is. If you choose to follow after the world, you are described here in Second Peter as a mocker. A mocker. One who mocks the Bible and your God, no matter how you paint the picture, no matter how you might describe the picture and all of its variations and its subtle differences to your own explanation, in the end, your God looks just like you. The God that you think about, the God that you succumb your and bow your life to is a God who acts just like you. But the choice, your choice is to believe the Bible, then your God is the supernatural God, the only living supernatural God who existed before time and who created all things and through whom all things exist and have their being. This is the essence of the comparison that Peter is making here between mockers and believers. This is the comparison made between those who proclaim truth as the Word of God gives it to us and between false teachers. And from our previous studies that we have already gone through, through Second Peter, we remember how Peter is showing this. He looks at history. He looks at the real history of the world. And he highlights a few specific accounts from the history of the world to show just how wrong mockers are when they look at the same history that believers look at. Remember how he highlighted it? Both with the worldwide flood and the judgment that came upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? That God did not spare the ancient world, verse 5 says. 
when he brought judgment of a flood upon the ungodly and how he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes. They look at that history and they seemingly say, oh, it isn't true. It's all a myth. When mockers look at that and they see what the Scriptures say about it, how proudly confident they are that they are right in their view of history. When in fact, they have been proved to be absolutely wrong in every way, not only by evidence, but also by the fact that they are rejecting actual history. And in doing so, they are rejecting the power of God. In rejecting the very history of what God has done, they are rejecting God Himself. They are rejecting the very power of God, disdaining God, and in their own minds, just as it says in verse 10, they are despising authority. They are despising what God has brought before them. That is simply to say that in the futility of their own mind, in the darkness of their own hearts and minds, defining life and history through the lens of one's own intellectual authority produces actual truth escaping one's notice. Defining life by the philosophies of men, by the intellectual astuteness of men, without acknowledging the supernatural in the sense in which God shows himself to be true and right, only produces in one person the escape of truth. It escapes their notice. Notice how Peter has reminded us of this in verses 5-7 through seven of chapter 3. Or when they maintain this, when they maintain what? When they maintain this reality, this thinking that history has gone on, that life has gone on just as it has from all of the beginning, even though we have these historical events, that really isn't the case. It's all myth. So where is the promise of His coming? When they maintain that, it escapes their notice. Do you see, truth isn't even available. It can't even be seen. They've denied the supernatural, and so truth escapes their very notice that by the Word of God, see, there's truth. It escapes their notice that what the truth says, by the Word of God, by the power of God, by the very character and nature of God on display through His Word as He has carried out His very Word, we know the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. And it even escapes their notice that while they deny that history and how the world was created and how the world was destroyed in the worldwide flood, this very present heavens and this present earth by the very same word of God are being reserved for fire. The very reality of denying that a judgment is coming through the denial that Jesus Christ is returning is a denial to say that judgment really is not going to happen and it escapes notice. The truth escapes notice that this world is being kept for the day of judgment and destruction just like it was in the old ancient days when the flood came to destroy the ungodly. So too this world is being preserved for that day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. 
But just as God destroyed the previous world, so too he is going to destroy this present world. And mockers come along and they say, that's crazy. Mockers come along and say, that's just flat out impossible. That's not what the evolutionary process says. And yet, the Bible clearly says and shows us right here in 2 Peter 3 that to deny God's history is to actually deny God's power. In essence, mockers are the quintessential doubters. And so here, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, Peter combats that. He combats the doubting heart. He combats the heart that we saw being expressed in one sense in the psalmist in Psalm 77. Has God forgotten? He's combating the doubting heart of the mocking false believers. And Peter does that by way of a warning to us who believe. You see, this is the reality of the Christian. The true Christian believes the Bible. The true Christian believes the Bible. We believe what it says. Not just in words, but we live what we believe. We believe it, and if we are honest, and if we are honest, even as Christians who, who believe the Bible and 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 work to live according to the Bible, if we're honest in our own humanity, when we look at the world around us, when we survey even this last tragic year, we can begin to wonder about what it says. I know we wouldn't want to say that to anybody, lest they think we're not a Christian. When we look at the Bible, we say, well, this is what it says, and yet I don't see that happening It's true, certainly we're not unbelieving mockers like false teachers are, but there are times when we ask questions like we heard in Psalm 77 this morning. Will the Lord reject forever? Will He never be favorable again? Has His loving kindness ceased forever? Has His promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has His, in His anger, has He withdrawn His compassion? Is that where we are? Those questions are questions that you and I ask in our hearts. The difference, the difference between the true Christian and those who mock the Scriptures is the heart behind those questions. Because very often, you and I as Christians find ourselves wondering. Wondering. We wonder, just like the first century Christians that Peter is writing to. As you look around the world, as they were looking at the world they were living, why, God, have you not sent Christ back yet? 
And just like those first century Christians, just like these who were wondering in that very question, we look around at the godlessness of our world, at the insanity of our world, and we wonder the very same thing. If I was to ask for a a raising of hands this morning, I wonder how many of us would raise our hands in answering the question, do you ever scratch your theological head and wonder, why is God allowing all this to continue? you ever wonder like that? Since He's the only true God, and since He is supernatural in power, then why doesn't He just swoop in and just destroy the enemies? That's the kind of question that can be in our minds as believers. That's the kind of question that Peter answering here in verses 8 and 9. The question that has this subtle hint of doubt behind it, not a doubt that says we're not saved or we don't believe it, but a, but a wondering, a, a, a conscious wondering as to the timetable. Peter answers those questions with a general answer and a specific answer. I want to begin this morning with the general answer. Notice what he says in verse 8. In contrast to verses 5 through 7, in the fact that what has escaped the notice of the mocker, Peter says, but do not let this one fact escape your notice. What is that? That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as is one day. You say, well, what is Peter saying? Well, at the very least, implicationally, at the very least, he is saying this. Don't let yourself, by means of hearing the philosophies of men and the foolishness of false teachers in our day, don't let yourself be drawn into overzealous thoughts about the specific timing of the Lord's return. Let me say that again. Don't let yourself be drawn in to overzealous thoughts about specific timing as to the Lord's return. What do I mean? Well, it seems rather obvious, doesn't it, that Christians should not be doing that. We as Christians should not be drawn into someone's speculations about the day and the month and the time when Christ will return. If not for the simple fact that we are exhorted in several places in Scripture not to do that. For example, Acts chapter 1, verse 7, Jesus said to the disciples, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority. Just on that one verse alone, if that's all we had, that one sentence from God through His prophets as He gave us the Scriptures, that one little sentence, it's not yours to know the times or the epochs which God has fixed by His own authority. Don't get drawn into the overzealousness of some as to the specific timing. And we hear those words, and yet there are Christians today, 
professed Christians today who are concerned with dates and times. It's true that we ought to be living in anticipation of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Colossians chapter 3 tells us that we are to fix our eyes on Christ. We are to live with this anticipatory motivation and hope, but in doing so, we must never be fixated on a particular time. To do so would be to go against what God has commanded us not to do. I was thinking about this earlier this week, and I remember as a young boy growing up in the late 60s and early 70s that UPC codes started to come out on products then. This was the new way in which they would track inventories and all kinds of things. And I remember my parents talking about the day in which we lived and the growing up times in which they had already grown up through as they were now adults in their own, raising their own families. And there were evangelical people, people within the evangelical church and the Christian church of the day who were saying that at the time that those things, UPC symbols, were a sign of the end. That this was the new mark of the beast, if you will, and Jesus is coming back, and they would give some kind of date that they were speculating about. We've seen that over the years, as many, many people who have professed to know Jesus Christ have claimed dates of Jesus' return and done all amounts of foolishness, only to have to come out with a new date and a new time. And a lot of people over the years, throughout the history of of our world, even into the 40s when World War II happened, and even before that in the early 1900s when World War I was happening, there were evangelicals claiming because of the wars were going on that this was the end times based upon what was happening, and each one of them have been foolish. God has told us not to engage in that kind of activity. It's futile. It's futile. And so the answer to our question in a general way is this. Don't doubt Christ's return. Don't doubt in any way Christ's return. Expect the Lord's return, but never try to determine the exact time of it. Never try to say, well, because this is going on in the world, it must be soon, it must be now even. We don't know that. In fact, verse 10 says it will come like a thief. It will come like a thief. That's simply to say that it's going to come when it's unexpected and when it's not known by anyone. It's going to come unexpectedly. It's going to come when you don't know it's there. It's going to come like it did in the days of Noah when the rains begin to fall as people were marrying and giving in marriage and having their life just as it was going on. It was just like in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah when they were just doing all the things that they did in the world that they were living in, in the debauchery of their lives and sin, and God that day commenced His judgment. So it will be. So it will be in an unexpected way. So that's the first implication here in verse 8 in answer to our concern, in answer to our potential doubt, in answer to those questions that come to the mind of the psalmist and come to our mind. 
Has God done this? The first answer to that question is, listen, don't fixate yourself on the reality as to whether God isn't doing what He should be doing or whether there appears to be a delay. Don't doubt it. Don't try to calculate it. God has not changed. There's a second implication, and it's this. And verse 8 says, don't let this escape your notice. The first implication is that we cannot be fixated on a timing, but the second implication is this. God is not like us. God is not like us. In other words, we cannot forget that in our humanness, we will never be able to fully understand or comprehend the mind of God. A day with the Lord is as a thousand years. A thousand years is as one day. That is simply to say that in our own minds, we are to never let it escape our notice and our understanding and in the outworking of our life and in the outworking of our thinking and our thought processes, we are never to let it escape our minds that we are earthly, that we are finite, and God is not. That may sound like a simple principle, but it is a principle that we relegate to the backside and forget far too often. We are not like God. Not only are we finite, but even our finiteness has been completely distorted by sin. In other words, if our finiteness is not enough to show us just how far beyond us God is, know, know that your finiteness is a sinful finiteness. It is sinful. It is tainted in every way. Therefore, even the starting block from which we start our contemplation about God and what He has done and what He is doing and what He should be doing is completely flawed from the start. The moment you begin to in any way doubt who God is or what God is doing is the wrong starting place. We have said it before, we'll say it again. Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, Anybody tell me how high that is? How high are the heavens above the earth? The only answer is infinite. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is so beyond us. So when I'm wondering, when I in my own humanness and walking through this world and walking through the difficulties of life that God has allowed, and I'm in my mind and I'm thinking, what is God doing or what is He not doing? When I find myself in that confusion, when I find myself in that anxious place, then the first thing I need to do is remember that the difficulty is with my own mind. The difficulty is with my own fallenness because God is infinitely beyond me. 
His thoughts are eternal. His thoughts are perfect thoughts that I couldn't even begin to understand. This is a reminder again. Here's how the psalmist said it. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? I said, it is my grief that my right hand, that the right hand of the most high has changed. The psalmist is in deep question, deep question as he ponders life. And the only answer the psalmist gives to his own heart is this. I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work. I will muse on your deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. There is no other answer for your wonder. There is no other answer for our doubt. There is no other answer for our contemplation as to what is happening. The reality is simply this. Our God is great. And He is not like us. So if through my doubting about God, I am assuming that I understand the mind of God, that I understand how it ought to be, then I am ripe. I am ripe in my mind at that moment for being led astray through false teaching. The moment you begin to assume that God should think like us, that God should act like us, even in the smallest ways, is the moment that I am right for being drawn into the foolishness of some false teacher. And so if I want to start with an understanding of the fact, I need to start with the reality that there is a massive qualitative difference between myself and God. If I don't start with that, then I will not see things as I ought to see them, and I will be vulnerable for the spewing foolishness of false teachers. If I don't start with this one fact that must not escape my notice, that I cannot be drawn into the overzealous foolishness of trying to figure out exactly when and on what day God must do His bidding, and that God must think like me and God operates like me, if I do not start there, then I will easily be drawn into those realities of asking the foolish question and trying to determine the reality of where is the coming of Christ. And all of its foolish dimensions that false teachers claim today. I'll live however I want. I'll do whatever I want because there is no judgment to come. So while false teachers in an ultimate sense through everything they say and do deny the supernatural, they deny the very power of God being displayed through what God has done throughout history, 
the Christian in all that we say and in all that we do must rightly recognize we are earthly and God is heavenly. We are finite. God is infinite. And with the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. That's the general answer. That's the general answer to our doubt. That's the general answer to our wondering. God is not like us. So how, how then is that general answer seen in its specifics? How is it seen through the outworking of God? First, first, first is this. God is outside of the time continuum in which we live. God is outside of the time continuum in which we live. The Lord, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. That is simply to say that God being eternal is outside of time. It's outside of time. Now, just the thought of that causes my mind to kind of snap in twisting. Because I can't even contemplate what that means, what that looks like, what that is to be outside of time. How can something be outside of time? And more importantly than that, what is it even like to be outside of time? When we set our minds even to ponder that concept, when you when you place your thoughts there and you try to get into that very reality we are immediately faced with the fact that it is impossible for us to even comprehend it's impossible there isn't a person that has walked the face of this earth and the humanity of themselves that can understand and contemplate what it means to be outside of time and yet this is where we must start This is where we must start when we come to the contemplation of God being not like us. If we are not to be duped by false teaching, we must start with this thought considering God. We are creatures of time and He is not. We operate within time. We cannot escape time. We are products in life of the passage of time. Just look in the mirror and you'll recognize that. Look at a picture of you when you were a baby and a picture of you now and you can realize the reality of the passage of time. We see the effects of time and its movement upon our very personhood. Is any wonder that the cosmetic surgery of today is a booming business. No one wants to see the effects of time. Time has affected us all, but this has no effect on God. The Lord, one day is a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. There is no effect on God. 
And therefore, when we are thinking of God and when we are evaluating the processes of God, it is spiritually dangerous for us to in any way box God in with time. In our concepts and our thinking of God and our ideas of who God is and the way we think about God, it is very dangerous for us on a spiritual level to put God in a box. He is outside of time. God, a thousand years is one day. Again, beloved, this is a simple reminder to all of us that God is not like us. He is not like us, and He is not bound in operation of our created realm. Let me say that again. God is not like us, and God is not bound in operation of our created realm. And yet, by God's grace and through His mercy, He, even though God is not bound by time, God does act in light of the time calendar which He has created. God acts in light of the time calendar which He has created. It even says here, for with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. God has created the minute. He has created the hour. He has created the week. He has created the month. He has created time. He has created infinity by way of terms of time. And God has seen fit to act in light of the time calendar which he has created. Therefore, since God created the reality of time, he also has ordained that he act according to his own purposes in light of that time that he created. Doesn't have to, he's outside of it. And yet he has deemed it so. So in describing that reality about God. Some try to say that God is just a a grand watchmaker, like the Swiss watchmaker, right? The Swiss watchmaker gathers all of these parts and all of these pieces, and he brings them together so that he creates a clock, and that clock begins to work, and it begins to show time. And even though he is the clockmaker, and even though he has the creator of that clock in that sense, he himself is not part of the clock. Try to get a concept of this reality as God. He built it. He wound it up. He got it going. But he's not part of it. And on one level, that helps us really try to grasp that. But like all illustrations, they fall short. It's like the illustration with the Trinity where someone tries to say, well, it's like water. You have, you know, you have the gas, you have the solid, you have the liquid water, but they're all water. They're all water in one sense, but they're not the same. So that's like God, God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Spirit, and this kind of thing. Or they talk about time. You have past, present, and future. They're all part of time, but they're not all the same time. And so that's how you try to explain the Trinity or something like that. But all those illustrations fall short at some point when we try to describe God in the ways with human terms because God is not like us. And so therefore, while God created time and thereby set it in motion and he keeps it going, the reality is that God is also controlling it. And his plans are being worked out according to how he bound them in the time he created.
You say, how do you know this? Because we can see it in the Bible all over the place when it uses this particular phrase, in due time. In due time. For example, Deuteronomy 32.25, God said, vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot will slip. For the day of their calamity is near and the impending things are hastening upon them. In due time. What date is that? What part of the calendar is that? I don't know, but in due time, God said. For Samuel 1.20, it came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son and she named him Samuel saying, because I have asked him of the Lord. Psalm 145, verse 15, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due time. Galatians 6, verse 9, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. And so we have to understand and we have to view God in that way. God is outside of time, and yet he still controls and acts in light of the time calendar that he has created. He's outside of it, but he has chosen to operate within it even though he is not inherently part of it. So here's the question that comes to mind. Here's the question at least that came to my mind. If God is outside of time, but God has chosen to operate within time, on what basis then does God operate? In other words, does God operate according to clock time, chronological time, the time that we read as dates and hours and months and these things? Does God operate within that? Or is there another kind of time that God is operating by? Well, Peter tells us that God operates according to his righteousness, and that also speaks concerning man's morality. Let me show you what I mean. Notice verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now that is simply to say that when we begin to wonder about whether God is involved or will he involve himself in this earthly life, not only do we not need to forget that God is not like us, we need not forget that, that he doesn't think like us, that he doesn't act like us, but we must remember that chronological time, time that we live by, chronological time is not the time that God has bound himself to. The time that God has bound himself to is the time of the reality of the fact that God is righteous. God is righteous. In other words, whatever may be happening, no matter how wrong it may seem, none of it has anything to do with God being unrighteous. 
None of it has to do with God somehow forgetting or God somehow acting in some way as if he didn't do what was part of his character and nature of righteousness. Whatever is happening is not unrighteous at all. It is not God being unrighteous at all. So when we look around the world and we see the absolute insanity of how people are operating today and going about life, when we hear of godless decisions that are taking place by any number of human institutions and those who live in life, whether it be marriage or gender or some other foolish decision that's being made, any number of things, even professed believers embracing all of it, God doesn't seem to be doing anything about it. And we're tempted to ask, does God really care about His people? The best place to come is verse 9. The Lord is not slow concerning His promise. The Lord's not slow about His promise. In other words, whatever that it may be that is happening, what it is not, it is not a lack of righteousness in God. It is not that God is unconcerned. In fact, it is just the opposite. God is so absolutely concerned about saving His people that there are some of His yet to be saved in chronological time. The Lord is not slow to His promise, as some count slowness, but rather He is patient. You see, beloved, God's calendar operates according to His righteousness and the morality of man. not a date or time on the clock. Remember back in Genesis chapter 6? Genesis chapter 6, just prior to the flood beginning, God said about the world at that time, verse 3, my spirit will not always strive with man. My spirit will not always strive with man. So what was happening in the world at that chronological time? At that time according to the clock and according to the calendar, the world had gotten to the place morally where the sin of man was at its peak. They didn't think so. The world at large and the majority of the world at the time certainly didn't think so. But every intent of the heart of man was evil all the time, it says. And God, through His own acts and through those who believed Him, Noah and the others, the world was destroyed. And all the time that Noah was building the ark, the Word of God was going out, but man was continually rejecting God, and there was no repentance, and no one was paying attention to the Word of God. And everybody said, Noah, you're crazy. What you're saying about God, what you're saying that God's going to do, that's just crazy. And we today say the same thing. Jesus is coming back. You better pay attention. You better repent of your sins. Jesus is coming back. And the world seemingly today is saying, you're crazy. And the Bible says, Genesis chapter 6, there will come a time when my spirit will not continue to strive with man. That's not speaking of a day on the calendar. It's not speaking of an hour on the clock. That's speaking of the moral condition of mankind. There would come a time when the morality of man was such that the patience of God would end. 
was over. And that day came with the flood. It's the same today. We who are Christians can be comforted by the fact that through the righteousness of God, all whom are chosen to be saved will be saved. Because God is righteous, all will be saved. There will not one be lost. All will come to repentance. And yet at the same time, we know that the day is coming when the patience of God against man's sin will end. Will end. As one commentator put it, quote, the world may laugh and mock may seem to be very successful as it does so, but as certainly and as truly as we are alive at this moment, the unrighteous and the ungodly will have to answer for their every word, and those who have been faithful to the Lord will receive the well-done, good, and faithful servant. Unquote. This is the time that God operates on. God doesn't look in the clock and say, Oh, my calendar shows that I must judge the world today. I better get to that. No. God operates according to his righteousness. And in due time, in due time, this day will come. The righteousness of the Lord is not slow. There is no slowness in God. There is no slowness in God. Slowness is, a, is an operation of chronology. It's an operation of time as we are in our time Continuum. That's not an operation of God. God is not slow as some count slowness. The Lord is righteous. He is not slow. There is no moral slackness with God. He is absolute righteousness. We want to not be taken by false teachers. We must remember that. We must camp ourselves there and know that because the world comes along and says, where is God acting? And we must say, and we must stand firm and say, listen, don't let it escape your notice that while God may not be seemingly acting according to your timetable, God is acting. God is not like us. God does not act like us. God does not operate according to the chronology timetable in which he has created, but he does act, and he acts according to his righteousness and your rejection of him, and he is going to act. Therefore, let us hold on to whether we understand what is happening, whether we understand what is happening around us or not, let us hold on to that reality. Let us have a firm faith in that. Let us submit to God and His absolute truth. Even if that means we look foolish. Even if that means we're standing alone. Even if that means that we are being tied to a stake and the match is being lit for the fire under our feet. Let us stand faithful that what God said He will do. Especially, we need to stand firm to the gospel of grace. This is the power of God into salvation. There is nothing else. His ways are not our ways. His ways are certain. His ways are sure. His ways are solid. This is the way of steadfast faith in the world of mockers. This is the only way. God is not like us. Don't let it escape your notice. 
God is outside of time. He is not bound by the time he has created for us to live by. God operates according to his righteousness and the morality of men. This is the way of protection against being duped by false teachers. A day will come. Peter says in verse 10, that day will come like a thief. You want to mock the history of God? You want to look at the history of God and begin to doubt your right for false teaching? Take the word of God for what it says. Take it at face value. Trust it. Believe it. Live according to it. Don't be duped by the false teachers who say, we found the day. We found the time. Not true. It's not true. Well, we'll get more of that next time. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are not like us. Concept that is far beyond us to even comprehend, to think about how you are outside of time and we are here in time. And how your interaction with us in time is not according to on a specific sense, not according to the clock which you've created for us to live by and the moon and the stars and how the days are made and all these things that you have spoken into existence. But we know your word is exactly right. And Lord, the essence of this very passage, the essence of this very book is to declare even at the end that we should not wait. Today is the day of salvation. There is no tomorrow. For today might be the day when your patience is filled up. And judgment comes. Lord, I pray that each person here this morning would realize that about their own self in relationship to you, that they would realize their sin has separated them and you, that you are at enmity with them and that they must repent of their sin. Turn to Jesus Christ by faith. Embrace Christ as their Savior that they might know life, that they might have a relationship with you, that they might understand that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, thank you for this year. Thank you that we can realize these things, that we can be acutely aware of them, even in a way that maybe we would not have known them before. But because of this year that you've allowed, we know them to be true more so than we ever did before. And while we say, come Lord Jesus quickly, we live by faith this day, knowing that your providential care is carrying out your redemptive plan according to your righteousness, and that everyone will answer. We have hope in Christ. So thank you for that. Bless us, Lord, as we honor your name. May your name be uplifted in our world and in our day. May we be known as those who believe the word of God unwaveringly, even if the rest go the other direction. So thank you for these exhortations. Allow them to be applied in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.